Hello and welcome to the Permaculture Podcast with Scott Mann, a listener-supported program. My guest for this episode is Rachel Kaplan, the co-author, along with Kay Ruby Bloom, of Urban Homesteading. She is also a permaculture teacher and practitioner, as well as a licensed marriage and family therapist from Northern California. Our conversation today covers all of these roles and more as we talk about repatterning ourselves and permaculture to be more intentional and deliberate in our work. We also spent some time talking about women in permaculture and on breaking down the barriers of understanding others and ensuring we are diverse in our inclusion of everyone and in our practices. Rachel also shares with us about the upcoming PDC she will be teaching along with Delia Carroll, Cassandra Ferreira, and Kyra Auerbach as part of the 13 Moon Collaborative, a new model for a 13-month-long permaculture design course that allows time for the course material to become part of your internal thoughts and external practices. You can find out more about that project at 13, the number 13, mooncollaborative.com and via a link in the show notes, along with ways to reach out to some of the organizations and people mentioned during this interview. From here, the show is on the road so that I can go to report on events of interest in the growing movements to build a better world and to continue to spread the word of this wonderful system of design we call permaculture. Next up, I'll be going to Chabacan in Bridgeton, New Jersey, on October 11th, 2014, where Lester Brown of the Earth Policy Institute will be the keynote speaker for a day of lectures, discussions, and tours on how to transform the world we live in. The last of the currently planned trips is to Roanoke, Virginia from October 20th through the 22nd. Along the way, I'll be interviewing farmers and local permaculture practitioners. I'm also going to be presenting on permaculture. Right now, that's called permaculture, creating a better world by design. On October 21st, 2014 at 6.30 p.m. To do that, I'll be at the Roanoke Natural Food Co-op in Grandin Village. If you're in the area, I'd love to see you there or at any of the other events I'll be attending. More on those as they are scheduled. If you value this show and the work of the podcast in spreading the word of permaculture to the world, lend your assistance in supporting these and the other projects. Share links posted on the Facebook page, facebook.com slash the permaculture podcast, with your friends or followers on social media. Retweet messages sent from at permaculturecst, or leave reviews on iTunes or your favorite podcast sites. All of that really helps to get the word out and allows the show to grow. I could also use your financial support, either as a one-time or ongoing monthly contribution. Find out how. You can do that at thepermaculturepodcast.com slash support. Now then, on to Rachel Kaplan. Then Rachel, thank you for joining me. Many years ago, many moons have passed since then. You were the first guest on the podcast, my first interviewee. And after seeing some of the videos that are coming out of the, the um, Walking Elephant Theater Company, I was reminded of that earlier conversation. I wanted to follow up with you and catch up and see where things have gone since then. So if you could give all the new listeners and some of the old ones who might not have heard that first interview a bit of your biography and background, the work that you do in the permaculture community, and then we'll talk about that work from there. Sure. Thanks so much. So I am a permaculturist for about 10 years and live on an urban homestead in Petaluma, California, which is Northern California. And in 2011, I wrote a book or published a book called Urban Homesteading, Heirloom Skills for Sustainable Living with my friend Kay Ruby Bloom. And um, it really documented both the movement of urban homesteading in the country, but also is a pretty thorough story of lots and lots of different things people can do at home to kind of true up their lives to the 
permaculture ethics and principles and just living more sustainably and lightly on the earth. In the time since the book came out, I've been doing, continuing to do a lot of work on the homestead and also with other people in their homesteads and doing some consulting and advising and thinking with people about how to really use the space that we have in cities to increase the resilience of our communities and our landscapes. And I've also really deepened my work in the zone zero quadrant of the permaculture conversation. I'm a somatic psychotherapist, which means I work in a hands-on way as a healer to help people um, repair some of the inner landscape damage that happens, which is largely about trauma repair. And I think of somatics as a as kind of the inner practice that mirrors the outer practice of permaculture. So there's land repair and there's inner landscape repair. So I spend a lot of time working with people one-on-one, in couples and families and groups to really help people listen better to themselves and to each other and to become more connected and uh, obstacle-free so that they can move forward into the world with more intent and clarity and purpose. And you brought a smile to my face when you mentioned Walking Elephant Theater. That was a beautiful project put together by Brian Bryson of these young people in our area who are learning about sustainability by interviewing different people and then taking the words that we gave them and uh, turning them into this hilarious theater piece. And that was a beautiful thing to be part of, just to to see young people learning about permaculture and earth repair and taking it on for themselves and putting it out in the world as art. So that was a great project that I got to do last year. Thanks for reminding me of that. It was great. Brian is someone who has been on my list of wanting to do an interview with. We've gone back and forth a couple of times playing tag, but I look forward to being able to have a conversation with him. He's an awesome, inspired, creative person who really, really uses art as a life and living process and really gives young people an opportunity to um, to learn with their bodies and their spirits and their minds all together about really important issues. So he's he's awesome. And that's why I love these conversations, because of being able to expose the listening audience to more people who are doing such good work and to bring that good work out into the world so that we can have an awareness of it. Yeah, it's good to tell good news, right? We don't always get some good news in this world. It's a big part of what I like about the permaculture community, generally speaking, is that it's a more positive kind of direction, that it's about building abundance and joy in the world that provides a more positive focus, that it's not about the negativity. We may have to address some of the issues that are going on in the world so that we have an understanding of them and can develop solutions, but it's not doom and gloom. Well, you know, I think there's two sides. I think that permaculture really does have a life-giving ethic, and it really is about healing the damage that's been done and being part of the solution rather than worrying the problem over and over again. But I think there is also an arm of the permaculture movement that is kind of hunkering down for the end times. So I think there's that balance that it's good to live on the other side where we're like, well, maybe things are coming to an end, but I'm going to plant a tree today. That's what I'm going to do. You know, yeah, maybe we're not doing as good as we could on climate change, but I'm going to, I'm going to make something good happen in my neighborhood. So I think it's very pragmatic and spiritually very renewing and it just has so many benefits, so many stacking functions, right? Very much so. Your comment about doing somatic psychotherapy and that zone zero work. 
and that personal work. It's something that Dave Jackie really started kind of pushing the line with. There was a series of interviews that I did. It was Dave Jackie and Larry Santoyo and Mark Lakeman all in short succession. They were talking about how there's the inner story that we inhabit as well as the cultural story that we're told to inhabit. And from that becoming right with ourselves and where we are in the world in order to be right and act right in the world. Yeah, for sure. I, I agree that there are there are those stories of the inner story, the cultural story, and the question of how to get right with the world. And what I find as a healer is that a lot of people, no surprise, come with a lot of distress, a lot of trauma, a lot of past experiences that really did not work for them. Some of them are personal family experiences. Some of them happen in their love relationships. I actually think most of us are traumatized just by living in a culture that's declared war against the environment and the poor and people of color and women. Like We live in a violent, traumatizing culture, in my view. And so the effects of trauma are a, a narrowing of our capacity to think outside the box, to respond effectively to change or really anything. And so when we work towards getting right with that, I have found that there's a lot of inner work that needs to be done. There's a lot of repatterning that needs to be done, sort of the way we think in a pattern language with permaculture about how do we work with the natural systems. There are certain things that the body does naturally that get interrupted by difficult experiences. So some of what somatics does is it helps repattern towards a generative and life-giving way out of the contraction that is created by traumatic or difficult experiences. And does that make sense? It's not a world that I'm familiar with enough to be able to comment on other than going, I think I followed you. So I think I'll just start to just to reinforce the point that people are, the way our bodies and our nervous systems work is by pattern recognition. And so if the patterns that we get when we're young are negative, then that's what we keep seeking and finding in life. And if we're lucky enough and the patterns are more benign or uh, beneficial, then that's what our systems come to recognize as how the world works. So for most of us, there's um, places where things didn't work right, where there's glitches, where we got hurt. And then that becomes a pattern that makes it hard to be right with ourselves and right with the world. And because we also live in a culture that propagates some terrible ideas about our differences and how people should and should not get along from racism to sexism to homophobia, classism, all those sort of isms in our culture that don't create the permaculture ideals of uh, fair share and people care and earth care. And we know we all know what they are. We need to work towards um, removing, replacing that pattern in ourselves. Like it isn't enough to just set up a gray water system. Like that's a great action. But if in ourselves we're, say, I don't know, contemplating on our revenge fantasies towards our neighbor who did something we didn't like, in my opinion, we're not quite doing the work that we want to do towards a regenerative culture. Like it's a total total remodel. It's not just how we deal with the land outside us or our homes. It's actually the inner terrain as well, which either does or doesn't create the conditions for a generative relationship or a generative future. What do you think? 
you've given me something that in that description weighs a bit heavy. I have friends who work in the health and human services field who not only the victims, but also the perpetrators of child sexual abuse. And in the conversations that I've had with them, as well as some of these other conversations about finding restorative ways to handle the criminal justice system, that if someone's not offered an opportunity to be able to change the way that they see and interact with the world, then how can we change the way that they act in the world? And somatics takes as its departure that there's like thinking about what happens to us. And then there's actually reckoning with how our experience lands on our bodies, literally in our muscles and our tissues, our bones and our cells, and keeps retelling the same story or creating the same set of expectations, no matter how much you've figured out what happened to you with your mind. So we look at the whole being, the mind, the body, and the spirit as uh, warranting attention and needing transformation. So it's not just um, the story we tell. It goes on a deeper level than that. Maybe not deeper. I don't like that word. More inclusive. You know, it includes all these different aspects of the self. So as with what we approach in permaculture, this is holistic. Yeah. And like with permaculture, we don't want just a surface fix, right? We're not just sheet mulching our lawns, right? We're thinking about that in the context of the larger watershed, neighborhood, wind, sun, vectors, all of those different things. It's it's part of a whole. And so we tend in our healing, just as we tend in our landscaping and our human community design to be a little more flattened than we need to. So somatics adds this whole dimension. The word soma means the living organism in all of its um, aspects. It's It's a holistic view. So seems really aligned with the permaculture work. Do you integrate some of these ideas in your permaculture practices and teaching? Oh, I absolutely do. And I'm, I'm starting to um, teach more permaculture directly. And I'm working in a collective with three other awesome women called the 13 Moon Collaborative. And we're offering a 13-month permaculture design course that actually starts with the Zone Zero work, it takes that as the ground that we depart from, and then um, goes from there into the more classical permaculture design training. So um, we're really trying to integrate and bring to permaculture this awareness of the inner landscape and how important it is that that consciousness shifts as we, you know, that we let permaculture, you know, compost our consciousness as well as our food scraps, you know, that there's a huge shift that we know as permaculturists happens that we think can really be emphasized. I think it's, I think people are really calling for that kind of attention to their awareness as well as to an awareness of their place. What does that beginning with the self work look like in the context of a PDC? Oh, that is the question. So we are, are planning our PDC right now. So I don't have a total definitive answer. One thing that I know will be true is that we will definitely be introducing a variety of body-centered practices to help people ground and center in their soma, in their bodies, as they take on the work of permaculture. So that's one aspect where we're going to make sure that there is a connection to the living, breathing organism of the self 
that's always brought into the discourse. So we're not just um, we're not just learning practical hands-on skills. We're actually linking them to our own intentions, our own commitments, our own sensations, and moving into the world from that place. It sounds like that would make the permaculture design course as if it wasn't already rather intense and intimate for the individual, but even more so. I think it's going to be intense, actually. Now, you say you're going to be doing this over 13 months. Is that one weekend a month? It's going to be one day a month for 13 months. So starting in October of 2014 and going to October 2015, we're going to meet one Saturday a month for about eight hours and um, work that way. When I did my PDC, I did the Four Seasons course at the Regenerative Design Institute, and I really liked being able to integrate the material over time through the seasons. It made so much sense to me. You know, it just gave me so much more time to assimilate and think about and practice, you know, instead of the the two-week intensives, which didn't work for me at the time. But in the end, I'm really glad I didn't do it that way. It's too much. So much information. It's just so much, right? Yeah. I did mine over seven months where we were meeting one or two days a month throughout that period. Yeah, I think overtime is better. It's just such a big paradigm-shifting work, you know? Well, and I think about all the hours of reading and sketching and designing and, you know, doing the mind maps and all these other pieces of exploring what it meant to design. You know, we're interested in sort of like a total life design. It's, you know, like there's the, the landscape design, but there's also that piece of like, and I say this a lot to people about the urban homesteading work, you know, people are like, should I get chickens? Should I do this? Should I do that? You know? Everyone starts trying to jump on the bandwagon, and I'm like, well, you know, do you have the space? Do you have the time? Do you have the money? Do you have the interest? Do you have people to help you? Do you really need the output from chickens, say? Could you share a coop with people? You know, I really try to help people ask questions that are specific to, you know, the invisible structures, basically, and what what's real for you at this time in your life, you know? And Things are different for people who just had a baby than they are for people whose kids are out of the house. As you know, you just have different kinds of time and energy or older people and younger people. It's just really important to really be assessing all those things as you, as you design your, your life around the ethics. I think sometimes people with uh, the urban homesteading piece, they think they're sort of like, well, you have to have all these different pieces for it to be a, an urban homestead. And it's like, well, yes and no, you know? Certain sites won't take that and certain lifestyles don't want that. And you know what I mean? There's just, there's really a lot of variety that I think comes from assessing your own personal ecology. That idea within permaculture that every site is unique, every design is unique. There are certain times when I feel that it's a bit of a cop out. It's an excuse for not having certain conversations about what is possible because even though my neighbor's site may be different, we still live in the same biome. We still have the same natural heritage, you know, certain soil characteristics that are similar. But at the same time, from what you were just saying from lifestyle, I think about how radically different my approach to permaculture is by virtue of the fact that I'm, you know, married with two small children with a stepdaughter who's now off into the world and all these other pieces that add up to what my life is and why certain things do and don't work. Yeah. I think it's super important that we don't go into lockstep about what we think we're supposed to do as permaculturists, but really assess what's needed and what's relevant and what's important and what we have an affinity for and 
I don't know if you feel this way, but I personally spend a lot of time meditating on like, what is an action that's worth taking? As kind of the ecological situation gets more dire, I'm like, huh, what is really important here? And what matters? And it isn't always my comfort or that I have good chicken eggs. You know, There's other questions and there's other issues that are relevant. And I think, I think we should be thinking about them. I really do. As we're recording this, I'm in a period where I'm realigning again and reassessing where things are. And I think that that one of my old coworkers used to call it navel gazing, but that kind of contemplative approach is important. As much as we need to avoid, as Mollison called it, the academics fallacy of I think, therefore I act. And there's that balance between thinking and acting. Ultimately, we're still working within the framework of a design system. So there needs to be time to design. And that requires that Sherlockian kind of thing of just sitting in the chair and doing nothing as you ponder and consider what the next step is. And I guess what we posit in the 13 Moon Collaborative is that your body and your sensations and your your connection to the zone zero is and to sort of the mystery that we live in as human animals, that if we center in that mystery, answers are going to rise up in a way that doesn't happen if we're busily moving from one activity to another, doing something we think we should be doing, but aren't necessarily aligned with, but that there's a deep wisdom inside of our biological systems, the bodies that we live in, that it's good work to tend to that and to learn to listen and to to respond to. So I guess you could call it navel gazing. <laughs> but I think it's I think it's a missing it's one of the missing submerged skills in Western culture, really. Like we've cut the mind and the body off and we've denigrated the body the way we've denigrated the earth. So I actually think any any repair and either it's like the micro and the macro, right? Like we we heal the body, we heal the earth, we heal the earth, we heal the body. It's a connective reciprocal conversation and dance. And I think it's important. And we're, we're trying to go from the inside out instead of the outside in, which tends to be the general dominant cultural fix is like fixing it on the outside, but not necessarily getting to the deeper structure. So we're you know, sort of the whole gambit of the 13 moon PDC is that going from the other direction is going to yield um, maybe the same solutions, but probably done in a really different way. And that'll provide a very interesting perspective then to be having conversations with graduates from that style of a PDC and the kind of insight that comes from that. Well, here's hoping, you know, and also I'll tell you the truth, like some of our impetus was that we don't see enough women teaching permaculture. We really don't. And um, so we're women, <laughs> we're moms, and we, we are devoted to the divine feminine and bringing that wisdom back to the world. And as permaculture is, you know, I think that that's part of the thrust, for lack of a better word, of permaculture, but there's a masculinist predominance in permaculture right now. So we want to see what it's like to come from the other side. It was, I interviewed Karen Olson Ramanujan about her pattern language for women in permaculture. And it was revealing for me to understand my own ignorance, because there were some difficult things for me in the conversation, just because of these unrecognized patterns that I was in, that I was a part of. Like what? Well, it's something just as simple as because I interview a man, I ask, 
that person for additional references. Well, then they give me their friends, which are more likely to be men because of the things that they do, and this weird cultural kind of societal story. Then I wind up that I'm not interviewing as many women because they're not coming onto my radar in the same way as an interviewer. And being in that place, it just went completely unrecognized for me. Then from that and having that understanding, being able to step back from it and go, okay, well then let's let's start working towards this thirty percent solution so that then we can work on having a balanced presentation of this material from all perspectives. What's a thirty percent solution? The thirty percent solution, as I understand it, is that once women are included as at around thirty percent of the leadership within a class or within the permaculture community of being. When there's a saturation of 30% of women, I think you're going to say something like the dynamic shifts or the learning shifts or something like that. Is that where you're going? Yes. That's where it begins to change, where people begin to recognize that involvement and that perspective as we move forward. And then that allows us to continue to shift that more fully. But that until we reach that 30% or that one third, that there's not a whole lot of movement because there's just not enough push for it. Right. And if we even think 30% is like a gross underrepresentation of the number of women either in permaculture or just in the general population, it's like, that's interesting that it's significantly less than half because that's really what women are in the culture. So I think it is important that permaculture moves towards that. Just like I think it's important that permaculture moves towards the inclusion of a whole wide variety of voices, right? How are we bringing permaculture to all different kinds of communities and different kinds of people? So I think that that's a, that's a big challenge for us now to sort of open the field, you know? I need to be doing a lot more to make sure that those voices are heard. I agree with you. I support you in doing that. I think it's, it's essential. Like we need to hear from people of color and we need to hear from queer people and we need to hear from poor people. And, you know, we need to hear from voices that are marginalized and we want permaculture everywhere, right? We want everyone to have an abundance. We don't want to just have some privileged white folks having an abundance. That's the same old story as far as I'm concerned. So in whatever way we all can commit to true diversity, I think is, I think it's important, you know, I really do. And there's a lot of challenges in doing it, but I think it's really important. One of the most powerful conversations that I've had recently as a part of the podcast was a series of interviews that I did with Ramis Kent about Islam and earth care and the way that that conversation about faith and the cultures that that touches on, the way that that changed a lot of the conversation for myself and also the feedback that I've gotten from listeners about how that kind of a person-to-person conversation helped them change their perspective. And having this conversation with you, we're only two voices of a multitude but we can help bring awareness of this to others. Yeah, here's hoping, for sure. So then with the 13 Moon Collaborative, who are your co-instructors for that? I'm working with a woman named Cassandra Ferrara, and another woman named Delia Carroll, and a woman named Kyra Auerbach. And we're doing the um, training in Occidental, California, which is a beautiful West County little farm. Cassandra and Delia are both trained as teachers of PDCs, like they've done the teacher training. And, um, and Kyra and I are not trained that way, but we're teachers in our own rights and um, permaculturists. So they're really great women, awesome women. I've encountered some PDCs that are women only. 
is that going to be one of the directions that you go with this or is it open to all? It's all women taught, but everyone is welcome. Just like you learned in that conversation about your own bias and your own um, place where maybe you're more blinkered than you want to. We don't want to like keep the information only for women. Your statement about being teachers in your own right. That's one of the things that's a common conversation now behind the scenes, it seems, that I'm encountering about whether or not a teacher training is necessary and even whether or not the PDC is a required piece of permaculture education. With that thought, what is your perspective on both the formal teacher training and the PDC within the community? Are you kind of sideways asking if we're, if like, is it a conversation of who's qualified to teach permaculture? I don't know that I would mean the question just to say who is qualified to teach permaculture, but more about what are the paths that someone could walk down to feel comfortable teaching this material. Yeah, that's a great question. And and we talked about this a lot because, um, yeah, like I say, we're in different levels and have had different experiences. And um, I think training is great. I think people should get a PDC and probably do it more than once. And I think training to be a teacher, especially if you've never taught anything is essential. Like it's not just standing up in front of people. There's a whole lot of things that happen for teachers in terms of working with groups and helping create a really good learning environment. So I think all those things are really important and desirable. And that said, I think that different people have different offerings to make to the discipline of permaculture and to the teaching of permaculture. And I think that it comes back to the same thing. The more we allow multiplicity of voices and sort of grow the paradigm, I think it's healthy and good to do that. But, I, you know, I'm a firm, staunch believer in training and practice and learning. And I don't think people should just go flying off the handle. Don't necessarily take one, then teach one. But if you take a PDC, then go and maybe intern with someone when they're teaching PDCs or to be there as a classroom assistant or start writing and teaching maybe a one-hour workshop and develop the corpus of the body knowledge in order to reach a point where you've developed all of the necessary skills to be a teacher, regardless of how formal or informal that path is. I did one PDC with Penny Livingston, and it was great. And I could do it again and again. And then I just immediately dove into practice. And for many years, I've been practicing and evolving my own scene. And and then I did write that book, which gave me more time to think about and learn. And then I got to talk to people and think some more and work some more. So in some ways, I feel qualified to teach permaculture. And in other ways, I'm like, I don't know, you know, I, could, I still have so much to learn. To me, it still feels like such a big, wide open branch of knowledge. And so, you know, I've had a lot of experience as a teacher, but have never taught a PDC. And I've, I've done some drop-ins to PDCs. Like I got invited to teach in Toby Hemingway's PDC once here up here in Sonoma County. And that was great, but that's not what I've mostly done. So we'll see. But I do have all this background and experience in the somatic piece, in the body-centered work, in that zone zero place that I feel like I feel quite confident in and eager to share with people. I feel like it's a, it's just an important piece that needs to, to go out. So in that way, I feel like we're doing a good work in, in growing the paradigm. And this is where one of my instructors, now colleagues and friends, Ben Weiss, talks a lot about how if he wanted to 
that he could teach a PDC for activists or a PDC for bankers or, you know, there are all these niches, all these, this huge umbrella under which we can do this work. Well, one of the things that's so exciting about permaculture to me, and one of the ways I always frame it to people is that it's, it's an ethical system with principles that if you align your life with that, your choices and your behaviors in your life is going to change. It just is. It's not just like you put your apple tree here and your borage plant here and your chickens here. It's so much more in depth and beautiful and moral and spiritual. And so if you take the ethics and the principles as the departure point, which is where I feel like you should begin, then there's just so much rich exploring that can be done about how do we true up our lives to the principles of permaculture. And, you know, it can happen in your backyard, it can happen in your kitchen cabinet, it can happen in your relationships, and it's so vibrant. So it can be applied to all different kinds of groups and people at all different kinds of levels and interests in in what permaculture has to offer. With your practice after taking your PDC, what did you do in order to practice permaculture? in your life? Well, I do a lot of food growing and I do a lot of um, animal tending and I do a lot of moving of water. (laughs) I am really involved with lots of different uh, like dirt, worms, chickens, poop, compost, water, tomatoes, lemon verbena. Like right now my kitchen is an overflow of incredible abundance that's either being eaten or dried or canned or, you know, like I'm busy turning the harvest into something that will sustain us. Those are some ways that I practice permaculture every day. I feel like I've really imparted a lot of the values to my daughter. So I feel like I I live a model for her. So there's a teaching part of my family life that happens. And what I have also found is just by living this way, of course, the, the effects of what I do ripple out beyond my little teeny tiny backyard and my neighbors just did a remodel and they're putting in a gray water system and you know there's things that happen because I'm living this way that I think is also part of the beauty of permaculture and just the reality of interconnectivity it's like I do something and people go wow that's cool can I do that and I say sure it's easy and then I teach them how and then they go do it you know So, so that's part of my practice too and um and I'm just a big community builder. Like we have a listserv up here in Petaluma where people are sharing information and bounty and questions and resources. And, you know, I'm part of that, that inquiry about how to do this and how to do it well and how to, you know, resource other people and support other people. And so I feel like there's that whole community piece to my understanding of permaculture that I feel really connected to and fed by and excited about. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, One of the questions that I get very often is, how can I apply permaculture to my own life? And it comes from such a wide, diverse group of people that the place that I always start that conversation is, where are you and what do you do? And then kind of work it out from there. And I love these conversations because it's more examples of what people can do to make their own life different within the place where they're at that they can meet themselves where they're at, rather than trying to go off and take a PDC and then become an urban farmer. If they've never done that, why do that unless you've developed a real passion for it in some way? 
you know, you could be a video game designer and that's what you love and you found permaculture too. Well, how can we marry the two of those together? Well, and I always say to people like, follow what you love, like what inspires you, what draws you? Like I live in a very dry climate and I'm totally obsessed with water. So one of the first things I did when I took my PDC was I jacked the laundry so that I would have a gray water system and then I jacked the bathtub and you know, I run around the winter gathering whatever rain falls on my property and I stash it in barrels, you know, and that actually, it feeds my garden, but it also feeds my spirit. I feel like connected to the water element, which I really need. And so, and I love to grow food and I love to be with plants and I love to have my hands in the dirt. And so, so I have followed those desires. And I think that, you know, again, back to the body, like, what are you hungry for? What do you want? What's beneficial to you? What calls you seems like a really important question. And, you know, maybe that videographer wants to video permaculturists and beam it out into the world. Like, who knows? You know, there's so many different ways of spreading the word and getting involved, really. And I'm in such a water rich area that one of the first things that I needed to make sure that I did was teach my children how to swim. Yeah, where do you live? I'm in central Pennsylvania, not far from Harrisburg, but I live on a stream that's one of the tributaries for the Susquehanna River. Different than Northern California, that's for sure. Very much so. And I just was reading an article that something like 63 trillion gallons of water have been lost in California because of the drought. It's really quite crazy. And it's, um, we're all, it's, it's extreme drought throughout most of the state. I read an article the other day that said something like 16% of the water is getting lost in municipal water systems due to faulty pipes, leaks, just bum infrastructure. And I was like, 16%. And then I learned the fact that in California, take a guess, do you have any idea of like how much of the water in California gets used by industry and agriculture, percentage wise? I'm going to guess 60? 85 so that's been an interesting fact. Like we run around trying to gather the rainwater and save the gray water and flush the toilet with bath water and all this stuff. But when you really think about it, it's like, oh, industrial agriculture needs to shape itself up, right? Like it, it's a challenge to the idea that every action makes a difference. Like it does and it doesn't when industry is using 85% of the water and not making any attempt to save it, you know? So I don't know how, you know, push is coming to shove in California because need water to live. So I, I we'll see. But it's a little, um, I find it a little scary. Water security would be nice. And capturing water here and installing gray systems in Pennsylvania, last time I looked, is super illegal. Yeah, interesting. It's illegal, huh? Yeah, the systems don't get approved because we're so water rich. The state does not differentiate between black water and gray water. So all discharged water is considered black water and needs to be treated in some way. Well, it's interesting in different places like Colorado. In Colorado, you can't catch rainwater because Colorado's at the top of the Colorado River watershed and the states south of the mountains need the water. So they don't want you to catch it because they wanted to get into the system that flows the water down all the way to Arizona. So that was an interesting fact. Like the water system is very complex and, of course, very um, controlled, right? It's not like a free-flowing system. So anyway, water is one of my things. It's, so this is like a way that permaculture has totally affected me and has helped me so much. Like these are things I can do every day that actually they make a difference to me, and it seems like they make a difference. And so I think that um, that's one way to think about how to enter in is like what – 
what calls you, what matters to you. And though there was no plan going into this, we had exactly the conversation that I was hoping to have today, Rachel. I love this so much, and I'm so glad that you joined me. But we're at about that time where I said that I would, I would bring things to a close. But before we do so, do you have any final thoughts or comments for the listeners? I would like to encourage people, if they're interested in the, the permaculture perspective I'm talking about, to go check out our website, the13moonCollaborative.com to see some of the things we've written about it. And if you're in Northern California and interested in the training, we welcome you. And um, yeah, I think that's, that's it for now. I guess I should remind people about my book. Should I do that? Even though my book is two years old now. <laughs> it may be two years old, but Mollison's designer's manual is what, 28 and it's still very relevant. And I think yours is even more so in the modern era. I think it's relevant. So I would just encourage people if they're interested to check out Urban Homesteading Heirloom Skills for Sustainable Living. And the website for that is urban-homesteading.org. And um, people can send me emails through that website. The contact information goes straight to me. And um, we love to hear from people and support people in doing um, what they can. So thank you so much. And I will certainly include links to all of that in the show notes to make it all easier for people to find. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you, Scott. And that was Rachel Kaplan. Our conversation today reminds me that we all have a voice and a place in the permaculture movement and community. It's part of what I love about creating this podcast and sharing what others have to say with the world. We add to the chorus of people who spend each day creating a better world and get to hear different stories that each of us can then connect with. Your voice is just as important as mine or Rachel's or anyone else in this movement. So if there's anything I can do to help you in the work that you're doing, email me, show at permaculturepodcast.com or call 717-827-6266. You can even send me a letter if you'd like through the post. That address is the Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, D-A-U-P-H-I-N, Pennsylvania, 17018. Until the next time, Create a better world, the world you want to live in, each day by taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.